0: Welcome to NutriTanks podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields, such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine, and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled, entitled, narcissistic, work shy, bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into NutriTank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to NutriTank's tanks podcast, Nourish Your Minds. Woohoo! Today we've got our first speaker. We're so excited to have her on board. Elaine McKinnick is a dietitian we've loved working with over the last three years. But Before I talk about the wonderful Elaine, I've got to say that I'm absolutely loving the recipes that are being released by some of the best restaurants at the moment during this Covid period. I made the Wagamama's salad dressing for lunch with a delicious crunchy vegetable salad and the katsu curry and I've got to say it was almost as good as the real thing, so thank you Wagamama's. We'd love to hear what you've been cooking during this time, so please tweet us or message us on Instagram and put it in your story with NutriTank underscore info for Twitter and NutriTank underscore official for Instagram. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Elaine. Elaine is a registered dietitian who splits her time between working in clinical education and research settings. One of her main aims is to improve nutrition education for future doctors. That's me. And she's the first research and education dietitian to be employed by a medical school. Well done, Brighton and Sussex. She sits on the executive panel for Nedpro Global Centre for Nutrition and Health and is the nutrition lead and director for Culinary Medicine UK. And alongside us, she sits on the Association for Nutrition's UK interprofessional working group. This group was tasked by the General Medical Council to update the nutrition content on undergraduate medical school curriculum. Elaine has been an invaluable source of support and knowledge for NutriTank and we are so honoured to have her on board. So, welcome Elaine. But great to have you on the pod. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Even though I've given you quite a big intro, um, but tell us a bit about yourself and tell me and our listeners how we actually got to know each other first and where we first met.
1: Okay, yes. Yeah. So, hi, Ali. Thanks ever so much for having me on today, and thank you for the lovely intro. Uh, so, uh, yes, I'm a bit obsessed about food. That's why I'm a dietitian. Uh, we met We, we met at the first culinary medicine session, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, so the first colony medicine session, it was two years ago. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. But I think that, that we connected because we had a, a similar challenge, really, which was trying to get nutrition into medical school. So i have been working in Brighton, trying to get nutrition into the curriculum there. And you were trying to do something similar in Bristol. So we connected over that little challenge, really exactly uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so, so I feel very lucky in the job that I do it's a real privilege to work in nutrition which is essentially my hobby so uh, yes it's the food it's just so central to physical mental emotional well-being I think there's social health how we interact with each other uh it's also a symptom of ill health as well. So, so uh, a lot of the work I do is talking to people about food and I think mm-hmm. things like, like depression or if you're feeling lonely or you have a long-term condition, how, how that affects what you eat. But also, it's, I, I think that food's just it's so much wider than that. So it's our biology, our physiology, but it's also politics. Um, you know, the economics around food, uh, it's... Um, our culture, our personal philosophy, and I think really, we were talking about this just before we started recording, it's just, just what makes us human, really. So, so probably one of the biggest questions on how we survive, uh, how we thrive both from our health but from an environmental health perspective, and I think it's just that rich complexity that just keeps me interested.
0: Yeah, no, so well put. It really is such a multifaceted thing, intersects with every area of society, like you said, agriculture, politics, health, you name it. So for our lovely listeners uh, who don't know the difference, it can be a bit complex finding this out online. Could you explain what a dietitian actually does and describe a typical day of your work? Yeah, of
1: course. Yeah, that's my top question. that I get asked all the time in my field. So Uh, Yes, so uh, 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 this is is, uh, from the British Dietetic Association. Uh, So uh, dietitians are um, qualified and regulated health professionals to assess, diagnose and treat dietary and nutrition problems at individual and public health level is the official uh, description there. But essentially what it is, 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 is uh, dietitians are allied health professionals. So we're registered in the same way as physiotherapists, occupational therapists. So in order to qualify as a dietitian, you have to do at least uh, an undergraduate degree, which most are four years, or you can do a master's, which is uh, two years um, on top of it, your, your science-based uh, degree. And the key thing that's different for a dietitian is you have to do some clinical practice. So you have to be in a clinical practice, in a hospital setting, uh, that's a test and that, that, that gives you your registration.
0: What is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Because I know it's often confused.
1: Yeah, good question. I get asked that question a lot. Uh, so, so essentially a dietitian is a health professional. So, so we are classed as allied health professionals just in the same way as physiotherapists or occupational therapists. Uh, so in order to become a dietitian, you have to uh, complete a degree but the difference is that the dietitian is you have to do some clinical practice. So uh, within a hospital setting, you are assessed within a hospital uh, clinical placement. And uh, if you uh, qualify, then you can then go on to register um, as a professional. Uh, nutritionists also, you know, really skilled professionals. The frustrating thing, I think, for nutritionists is it's not a protected title in the same way as dietitians are, but you can uh, register with the Association for Nutrition. So they will register... Someday, if you can say that you have a degree many have, masters, PhDs and really exciting is uh, that they're, they're working towards a chartered nutritionist status so the same way as you'd be a chartered accountant mm. so, so working towards a professional title which would be amazing and you also have nutritionists that are uh, registered with the British Association for Nutritional Therapists as well so there, there's quite a variety and I, I think we could do better really at thinking about the collaborative links between all professions uh, bearing in mind that all of us are really small professions
0: yeah i mean i know that i was speaking to um folk over at the nutrition society and they were telling me that all of you have formed the academy of nutritional sciences which is the british which is formed of the british dietetic association so the bda The Association for Nutrition, AFN, which uh, for our listeners is the registry body for uh, nutritionists to uh, be aligned with. But as Elaine pointed out, there are so many of these. But um, the AFN, um, which we'll talk about later, are actually the body that have been tasked by the General Medical Council to update nutrition on undergraduate medical curricula. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, So Also in the Academy of Nutritional Sciences sits the Nutrition Society uh, which is an amazing society that's been around for years and years. Um, If you want to read more about them they've done a blog for our website and there's a lot of research that they do. So um, I agree with you Elaine it's such an important um, profession and there are not as many of you as there are um, as doctors and nurses, and so it is really important that um, you all are kind of linked up in a way. But of course, there are politics involved with that.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that there's there's been great strides forward, really. Uh, certainly, I'm part of the Association for a Nutrition Curriculum Group. So uh, as are the British Dietetic Association. So we're all friends.
0: Yeah, and we know, as we always joke, you've got a lot of friends. So um, speaking of your friends, could you tell us a bit about all the organisations that you work with um, as you are kind of the go-to person when it comes to everyone um, liaising with each other, be it the doctors, the chefs, the nutritionists, the medical educators. So tell us who all your friends are. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's such a big question. There's many organisations that I work for. My my uh, my husband jokes that I get collect jobs like stamps. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so uh, my my main job that, that pays pays the bills is I work for Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Uh, so that's uh, as as a nutrition lecturer uh, and uh, alongside Dr. Kathy Martin. Uh, I uh, also uh, uh, work as a clinical dietitian uh, within Brighton Hospital uh, working in diabetes and pregnancy and uh, the the two other organisations that I work with is Culinary Medicine so really excited to be working with Culinary Medicine it's a really fun way of teaching nutrition we teach nutrition in a kitchen Uh, so, so it's the science happens before you come along so so we do online learning so when participants come along to the day we can concentrate more on the practical aspects of nutrition so so we, we use cooking as a way of trying to relate what nutrition might mean for our clients so we have a case study we cook a meal thinking of that case study while we're cooking so we can discuss the ins and outs and some of the controversy around some of the nutrition messages And uh, finally, we practice consultation skills. So that's a lot of fun. And finally, I work alongside Nepro who are a research um, organisation. There are many things actually, but they essentially link together lots of different professions that are interested in nutrition. So. Uh, I've, been in, I've been working on some research projects within the NEDPRO network uh, and uh, just making lots of, of links and uh, collaborations. So just lots of opportunities there also. Uh, the, the one thing that, that, that we have been involved in, so, so I've been obviously working alongside NutriTank for some time, uh, which helped me in all of those areas. Uh, but uh, uh, NutriTank and... Um, uh, NEDPRO and uh, only Medicine, we're all working together now as a part as a nutrition coalition. Uh, so the, the newest uh, organisation there is actually a, an organisation that, that myself and Kathy have put together which is the uh, Education and Research in Medical and Medical Nutrition Network. So the reason we did that is because we're, we're teaching nutrition in Brighton And there's not that many people teaching nutrition in medical schools across the UK. So we're hoping to link together lots of other educators doing something similar so that we've got more of a powerful voice, we hope. Uh, But also to link with um, occupational therapy, health, any health sciences, so uh, we can sort of push the message more for for more nutrition in a multi-professional fashion.
0: Wow you really do have a lot of friends and certainly a wealth of knowledge. So amazing that you're connected to all these different organisations because as we've learned at NutriTank it's so important to collaborate rather than compete and to really make sure that this message is as widespread as possible and it really is a shared vision. So we really have loved working with you and I'm lucky enough to actually have been taught by you. So for our listeners, um when culinary medicine was piloted at Bristol Medical School in the summer of uh, 2018. Elaine was one of the dietitians that came to the GP practice where the culinary medicine pilot was being held. And she taught us all the art of motivational interviewing and learning how to meet the patient where they're at, find out what it is that they feel that can be feasible for them to make a change to their diet and lifestyle. And then we even got to held um, our own health promotion clinics within the GP practice, having learned all these skills from dietitians like Elaine. So it really was an amazing course to be a part of. And Bristol were uh, really forward thinking. Um, our primary care faculty, Professor Trevor Thompson, was the one who agreed to have it on board and did all the heavy weight lifting to get the rest of the faculty to agree to have it as a special choice module. And um, it's been very successful. And last year's cohort of students who did it, uh, really enjoyed it. And unfortunately, it obviously can't run this summer due to COVID, but um, I'm sure it will be back the summer after. And what's really great about culinary medicine, and we're going to get uh, more information out of them over the next few weeks. Um, so they have also managed to get their course into UCL. So UCL uh, primary care faculty have also been very forward thinking. I had a conversation uh, with their primary care um faculty member uh, Sophie Park this week and she was telling me how she got it into UCL and the great thing about UCL is they got Culinary Medicine to um, actually be for the entire final year cohort uh, which is a really huge achievement uh, for the UK because to have a whole year of medical students being taught by a chef, a dietitian and a GP during their primary care placement is something really, really forward-thinking and quite really should act as a model and a template for what the rest of medical training should look like. Would you not agree, Elaine? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So it's been an amazing experience teaching UCL medical students. Uh, what we've found is... So the first cohort that came into the kitchen were just really unsure of what it was all about. I think came with the perception that we would just be cooking complex meals, healthy meals, using uh, strange ingredients, but really the uh, the practical aspect is, is that, that we only cook things that are cheap, easy to cook, and, and the cooking is used as a basis for discussion. So, compared to the, the teaching that I do in Brighton, which is in a, in a very formal lecture setting... It really opens up the conversation. So the first thing that we do is we invite controversy. so so come along to the session and if you don't agree with some of the nutrition messages out or you're not sure about what we're talking about here, do bring that to the table and the students do. so that that gives us a really rich discussion.
0: It all sounds so fantastic, Elaine. Could you tell our listeners a bit about the feedback you've had from medical students who have been on the culinary medicine course? especially those that, like you mentioned, were unsure about coming on it in the first place, even though UCL made it compulsory. Well done, UCL. Um, Could you tell us about how uh, they felt after they did the course and whether you were able to turn some non-believers and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and that's why we ask uh, people to come with their uh, scepticism as well, because I think that, that uh, by speak, by voicing that scepticism and talking about some of the reasons they, they might not think it's important to talk about food with their patients, we can uh, have a think about that. Uh, so, so we do some uh, uh, evaluation before you attend the course and after you attend the course and, and people are, are reporting that their importance of where they see nutrition is increasing, but I think key is is looking at confidence. So, so we can talk about. The science of nutrition, we can talk about vitamin, we can talk about diabetes trials we can talk about m- many different studies but we, there's not a lot of education on how to actually put that into practice so, so I think having uh, some practice with consultation skills is the real game changer there and the feedback we're getting is, is that when we started this, we'd ask a question at the beginning, uh, how many doctors have you heard talking about nutrition in practice? And to start with, the students were say, well, not many, but as those students have gone back and talked to the GPs they're working with, as the sessions have gone on, now our students are coming saying, well, yeah, no, we hear quite a few conversations about nutrition. So we suspect, and this is to be tested uh, somehow, that, that because students are getting interested in nutrition and going and discussing that with the GPs in practice it's actually influencing health professionals and their practice around nutrition as well so uh, we've seen that with UCL and we've also seen this with Bristol medical school so uh, we had one student who emailed us to say that she was using nutrition practices motivational interviewing uh, techniques that she finds on our course and and she was teaching this to the gp that she was sitting in with wow so this is a skill that he felt that he wanted to continue with because i think that you just can get such a rich uh, uh, from your patients in terms of their social history, but also it's so key to health and well-being that it's bizarre when you think about it, why that isn't included. If you're going to talk about medication, why would not you talk about what somebody
0: eats? I couldn't agree with you more on that. And that is exactly why Ian and I set up NutriTank. Why on earth aren't doctors talking about diet and lifestyle with their patients? Why? So I definitely felt that I gained the most from the culinary medicine course from learning how to talk to patients about diet and especially learning how to talk to patients around their weight because it's such a contentious issue. And, you know, so many doctors avoid the issue and, you know, there's a huge stigma around it and not wanting to offend your patient and patients fearing going to the doctor for the reason that they may bring up their weight. So um, on that topic, do you have any tips to um, your fellow colleagues um, who are doctors or dietitians and um, current medical students, how they can actually approach the subject about weight in a very sensitive manner?
1: Yeah, so, so I probably wouldn't be so direct around weight. I think it depends on the reason that the person's come to speak to you. So for example, one of our real case studies that we talk about is somebody who's at risk of diabetes who happens to be overweight, which obviously is a, a part of the... Uh, bigger picture but but what we, uh, we we practice asking open questions so so an example would be so tell me a little bit about what, what you know about diabetes and tell me a little bit about how you manage that for yourself uh, so we're inviting patients to talk about what they know so, so you may talk about uh, your activity you may talk about just improving the quality of your diet or you may talk about you wanting to lose weight so I think you can be led with a patient so all three of those things would help your management so uh, if somebody wants to focus on weight yeah fair enough you've been given permission to talk about that then with your patient but if they want to focus on activity then you can focus on that so I I, I think really uh, just coming up with those open questions and what we encourage is um, in courses that we do with health professionals as well is just writing down a few sort of key opening questions that you can use in a lifestyle consultation that, that might just uh, get, get your patient to think
0: about this in a non-confrontational way. Absolutely that sounds really effective and I think we really need to have more templates and you know a greater understanding of how we can talk about weight in a more sensitive and contextual manner so that it doesn't come across as offensive or out of the blue. So thank you so much for that. I hope that will really benefit our listeners. Um, so we've spoken about culinary medicine. I want to uh, get back to your wonderful work at Brighton, but can you tell our listeners um, where they can find out a bit more information around Connery medicine and um well, yeah where they can find out more Yep,
1: yeah, sure so uh Connery med uk is our handle on both instagram and twitter and you can find our website at wwwcarni i think yeah culinary medicineuk.com.
0: so if you want to hear more about culinary medicine visit their website culinarymedicineuk.org and their Instagram and Twitter handle is Culinary Medicine UK. This will all be in the description of the podcast. For our listeners, Nutri Tank and Culinary Medicine work very closely together. Nutri Tank's co founders, myself, Ali, and uh, my co founder, Ian Broadley, were both. Uh, part of the first cohort of medical students to be on the culinary medicine course in Bristol and we absolutely loved it and we are working with them to help engage other medical faculties to implement culinary medicine. So stay tuned to find out more and some exciting research is on the way. Right, Elaine, so back to Brighton and Sussex Medical School. In 2016, you appointed the first research and education dietician. Could you tell us a bit more about what this role involved and why it is so important?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this is totally the brainchild of Dr. Kathy Martin. So you know Kathy, don't you? So Kathy has been teaching nutrition for many years. Uh, her background is a nurse, actually, but she's she did her masters in nutrition. Uh, and, and she used to give a couple of lectures in the medical school in Brighton. But what she decided is she was gonna do a curriculum review to see where nutrition was in the rest of uh, the five-year degree. And guess what? It was nowhere, it was nowhere to be seen. Uh, but, uh, but Brighton Medical School wanted to do something about that. So so Kathy had the evidence. She went to the medical school curriculum board said actually they weren't even reaching gmc standards so so, so nutrition is part of the gmc curriculum uh but uh, not all medical schools are are meeting that so so uh, anyway that's that's what was her idea she said well tell you what let's get a dietitian in to be a nutrition educator and that's I applied for the job and I got it. So, so the advantage is that I'm still part of the Department of Nutrition and Dietetics in Brighton. So, my specialities is in diabetes, but I have instant access to all of the team that work in many different fields uh, in Brighton. So, 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 pediatrics, gut health, IBS, celiac disease, intolerances, all the rest of it, the whole shebang, really. Um, So yeah, so that's how it all started. It was only in one module. It's now in eight modules. In fact, it's in uh, the the whole year one to year four curriculum. So it's not the biggest part in the curriculum because it's a medical degree. It's not a nutrition degree. But what we're doing is we're including nutrition where it's relevant. So when you're talking about cardiovascular disease, Nutrition is a part of that. We contribute to renal disease, obesity. Uh, We've just added in in the first year. So this is one of the first modules that the medical students do is we talk about food insecurity and food poverty. Uh, So so I think, really, that that underpins everything, really. So there's no point talking about food until we think about the most vulnerable first. And then we specifically think about nutrition when we're thinking about different clinical conditions as they, they go through their training.
0: Wow, that is absolutely incredible and a really fantastic role model for other medical schools. And I really believe we need more of you, Elaine. I'm very comforted to know that there is one more unicorn creature like you and that is Dwayne Miller who um, we all know because he spoke at our conference in March alongside you as well and he is also a dietitian who sits on the medical faculty at Aston Medical School, a very new medical school which um, probably means that it has more space to create new things within the curriculum so elaine do we need more of you quite an obvious question but do you think other medical (laughs) schools should follow suit
1: i'm gonna say yes yes (laughs) yes I think the, the difference is, is there are dietitians that are contributing to uh, to medical school teaching. So there's brilliant dietitians that are going in and doing one-off lectures. But having somebody who's actually there all the time, the advantage of that is, is that you're not taking nutrition and treating it as something different or an aside. Is, is We really want to integrate nutrition into the curriculum. So, so it gives me the flexibility. Sometimes I turn up to a lecture and I do 10 minutes, And that's fine because I have the flexibility to do that, but you really need somebody to take that overall view in order to make it really work. There's one other medical school that I can add to your list and that's Dundee Medical School, which is close to where I grew up. Uh, um, There's a very good... Nutritionist who's working there, Suzanne. So so she is a registered nutritionist and she worked within a t- small team of nutritionists actually contributing to nutrition education. So we're at the moment just trying to identify people who are teaching nutrition in the curriculum and trying to, to link that together. So that's, as I said, this is a lot of the work we're doing in Brighton, uh, which is our educational research and medical nutrition group that we're hoping
0: to grow. And for our listeners, that is abbreviated to ERIN, and you can find more about them online. I will link it to the description. So as you can see, there are very few of people like Elaine, and we would really like more of them on board. And from what Elaine's pointed out, I think the most pertinent thing is to actually say is that nutrition needs to be integrated into medical curricula just like how Elaine outlined it should not be a standalone module because being a medical student I know when we have standalone modules they're far less impactful and we kind of just go through the motion and you know, then it's a module done. We never really come back to it and it doesn't really inform how we're going to think about our future practice and our skill set because everything by the end of it, when you get to final year, becomes automatic. You learn your systems approach of how to take a history and examine a patient and if diet and lifestyle, for instance, aren't in there, you're not really going to uh, be able to implement that into your practice when you're a doctor because you'll be under such time constraints that it just won't even come into your mind which is why it needs to happen from the onset and in an integrated way like Elaine outlined so that it inserts into every medical specialty be it endocrinology looking at the study and medicine behind hormone regulation and cardiovascular health, respiratory health you name it it needs to be there and so we also know that assessment drives learning and we really need the bank of questions that medical students have to answer in their exams to include nutrition and diet related questions wouldn't you agree with that being an educator and knowing your medical students is this going to be an exam
1: yeah exactly yeah (laughs) so that that was a big learning curve for me actually, so I had to really adjust my teaching. I've done a lot of teaching with health professionals, I did a lot of teaching with GPs and practice nurses, and uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of students that are interested in how to be a better doctor. But I can totally understand that in the heat of the moment, when you've got an exam looming, you're concentrating on what's going to be in that exam, so it's kind of like one step at a time. So I make the point of, of uh, targeting my lectures so that, that part of it towards exam questions. And we are integrating exam questions now more into to all of our exams that we teach in, and uh, but, but also thinking about how to be a better doctor at the same time. So I think both are important, but uh, yeah, just engage everybody. If it's in the test, then you have to learn it. And 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 it's not just that the tests that we can teach on, uh, we can examine on. Rather, uh, so we also are uh, we, we contribute research projects. So within the fourth year of medical school in Brighton, all students have to complete a research project. And that has been a massive win for us. So there's obviously a shortage of nutri- uh, research projects because there's a lot of students that need individual unique projects. So we've contributed lots of nutrition projects. And, and that's how we've almost managed to create a bit of a nutrition research centre in Brighton that's supported by our NEDPRO colleagues. Cathy's uh, uh, got a background in nutrition research, I'm still learning, but I'm very enthusiastic. Uh, so, so that has been a win. So we've covered um, research projects, everything from using chewing gum post-surgery to reduce ileus to...
0: Can you... Uh, literature- sorry, Elaine, can you tell our listeners what ileus is? As we know, it's a bit of jargon. <laughs> go on yeah sorry
1: yeah so it's a lazy gut so just to wake up the gut so post-surgery it takes a while sometimes for your gut to start working and if it goes too long so that your your gut isn't working after surgery then we would have to give patients nutrition via their veins as um, we call parenteral nutrition so we want to get patients up mobilizing and eating as soon as we can uh, so, um, so, by using chewing gum and stimulating the gut to work um, a, a bit quicker, we hope to uh, influence patient care to get patients home quicker. So, the research that we've been looking at, so we've been looking at existing research in terms of a systematic review, and our last research project was looking at baseline um Uh, information of what's happening on our wards already in terms of uh, how long it takes patients to get out of hospital post-surgery in relation to their nutrition and we're planning to do an intervention study starting next year so we're going to introduce chewing gum as a part of a standard protocol into our wards just to see if we can make a difference so that's one example of where medical students are really helping to push things forward for us clinic, thing, as as well as, as as just a subject that you you uh, learn about at medical school really influence in practice at the same time also influence our practice in my gestational diabetes clinic. So we've looked at uh, different um, types of diagnosis and which has influenced some of our policy and. What else have we been doing? Yeah, we've been looking at hospital food environment and and what's available. We've been looking at a systematic review of probiotics and prebiotics and the potential that this could be used as an additional treatment to add on to anxiety and depression treatments, many, many things. So, so yeah, hopefully, I'll get some of my students onto your podcast.
0: I'd love it more. I'd love your students on the podcast because. As you know, we're all about giving millennials a good reputation. So I'd love to get some young researchers on to tell us about the interesting research they're doing. I mean, who knew that chewing gum could be such a beneficial thing? I just remember being told off at school for chewing gum in class. And now, you know, it can save patients and give them a faster recovery time. So, you know, everything is nuanced in life. Uh, Really great to hear, Elaine. Um, you mentioned earlier that you've worked very closely with us for the last few years and that you've also been working with nedpro so i want you to tell our listeners about the brilliant bmj paper that's just been published that you and members from nedpro and myself and ian from nutri tank have all worked on And it's just such a great triumph for research around nutrition and medical education. So please take it away because it was so much of your hard work that went into it.
1: So excited to see our paper finally being published in the British Medical Journal. It, it, It has been a long time that we've been working on this project. So essentially we were looking at specifically in the UK at uh, doctors and medical students opinions and perceptions of nutrition within medical education and also in medical practice the interesting thing is is that there is zero zilch or very, very little research in this area for the UK at the moment. Uh, so, so this is really uh, the, the first piece of evidence that, that we're putting forward. Um, th- there was a, a really big systematic review came out just at the end of last year. Jennifer Crowther and Lauren Ball, amongst others, are uh, New Zealand um, Australian colleagues who essentially were saying that, that nutrition education within medical schools is, is not brilliant throughout the whole world and that is what we reflected in our paper. So uh, thank you to Tank who contributed a lot of the data that we analysed uh, um, and also uh, we had a lot of help from, from NEDPRO, so NEDPRO being that big research organisation headed by Shimon. Uh, who also happens to be one of the directors of the british medical Nutri- uh, bmj nutrition which is where our article was published so our what our study showed is that uh, medical students were, were, were reporting less than two hours of nutrition training throughout their whole five years they didn't feel this was adequate and Over 90% of participants felt that nutrition was really important and an important part of their role as a doctor, but really interesting, even though they felt it was really important, uh, when we asked the doctors, uh, what, what was happening actually in practice is 70% said that they were talking about nutrition less than once a month so even for doctors that are the most interested in nutrition they may even have a good knowledge of nutrition we don't know um, although our research did suggest that, that that was really split in where they perceived their their, their nutrition knowledge to be but even with that that. Big interest in nutrition that they weren't translating that into patient care. So I think that really strengthens the argument is we can talk about the importance of nutrition, but there is no point unless we help to improve confidence and help to improve people's understanding of what the role of a doctor is in nutrition, because they're not nutritionists, they're not dietitians, but where their role lies and where they can really Uh, push the goalposts in terms of identifying people with nutrition problems, giving first line information and then linking in with nutrition colleagues such as dietitians where it's appropriate uh, so you know we're hoping that, that this is the, the starting point really uh, so that we can build on this research so we have a lot more to work on here in the UK.
0: Exactly and you hone in on some really important points I know from the survey data that we collated for this project that we found that junior doctors and medical students really did not know when to appropriately refer to a dietitian and something i've really learnt when being on hospital wards and on my placements is just how important it is to work really well and coherently in your multidisciplinary team and to involve all the right people in a patient's care so we really hope that this is the start of something special and absolutely crucial for patient care especially in the light of lifestyle-related and chronic diseases. So thank you for your very clear explanation on the paper. And for those who want to read it, I will also leave a link in the description. So, on to the current situation, Elaine, which is COVID. And I know before we started recording, you started telling me about your other research project, um, looking at food insecurity, because you just don't stop. You really are a superwoman when it comes to research. And so in light of what you spoke about in Brighton's curriculum with teaching medical students around food insecurity and food poverty, I want you to kind of tell our listeners how this has become so salient um, during this COVID period and how important it is for the general public and healthcare professionals to really, you know, take stock at this time. Um, about the symbol of food and how important it is?
1: Yes, I think that, that COVID-19 has it's shown us many many problems with our food system so we now have people that are self-isolating, that are uh, struggling to get access to food uh, we have uh, um, very vulnerable patients who need to follow special diets for medical conditions that are not getting the support and help around that uh, and uh, we have now um, people who are struggling to afford food, so, so people that are losing their jobs or being furloughed and not having that that same income in order to put, put towards food. So, so we already had uh, a lot of the population using food banks. So food banks weren't really around until 2010. And uh, I, I was just writing that this, this morning as food bank uh, use has, has increased by 163% in Goodness the UK. May. So shocking. So we already have this very vulnerable group who are uh, struggling to access the food that they need and, and having the added pressure of food provision food affordability that COVID-19 brings is really pushing things over the edge. So so this is something that I'm writing about at the moment that uh, I hope to share more of at a later date. But personally, in my 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 work that I'm doing, my, my practical work that I'm doing, so, so I'm a uh, volunteer, so I'm, I'm delivering food to local neighbours. I've volunteered my husband, he's delivering food for our local food bank. Um, And we're working alongside patients in order, so when patients are getting discharged from hospital, we give them information on where they can get food delivery from, where they can register to get help with shopping. All of these things are suddenly, even if you didn't have problems with food before, as people are finding themselves in that position for the first time, and because nutrition is so important for your health, for your mental and your physical health, and also to—if if you were to, to develop COVID nineteen—really important for your immune uh, responses as well. So. so uh, nutrition is, is, is very important at the moment and uh, just the challenge is how we identify people that need more help and how we provide that, that uh, help for, for people that, that really need it at this time.
0: That's really fantastic work and wonderful that you're able to look after others as well as your family at the moment, uh, very admirable and it is all about community support. So I totally am there with you. And I wanted to ask you if you could tell our listeners about any of the uh, nutrition and COVID-related research that's come out, whether it's been on the micronutrient deficiencies that have been picked up or about obesity being somewhat of a risk factor. I've seen that in the headlines quite a lot. Could you tell us, um, you know, how strong is the evidence base around these things that I've brought up and um, any other interesting facts that have come up with food and Covid?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we know that older age is a big risk factor. Um, and also people that have existing comorbidities. So if uh, you have type 2 diabetes, uh, existing cardiovascular disease, hypertension, um, patients are more likely to be overweight. And, and the, the interesting thing is, is I think that, that these are also uh, the, the, the patients that are less, are, 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 there's a real health inequality there so uh, people from from lower income groups are far more likely to have diabetes cardiovascular disease and then um, subsequently they're the people at the moment that are struggling to get food and it could make their situation even worse. I think that, that there's a real inequality in terms of uh, who's more susceptible and who is more susceptible to a severe case of COVID-19. Um, but also, uh, th- there was something just published uh, just last week, actually, looking at micronutrient deficiencies and um immune function and the possible role that that, that might play in, in COVID-19 as well. So that was just published last week in the BMJ nutrition as well. So I, I think that there's many uh, different areas of nutrition that, that's important to consider in terms of uh, how nutritional problems can increase your risk how nutritional problems can drive the inequality in in health conditions and how that can be connected to to risk factors, but also thinking about if you do develop COVID-19 and how nutrition can support your immune system. And then ultimately the big challenge is going to be is how, how we can support people to recover, particularly if they've been spending a long time in intensive care units will have been tube fed uh, for some of that it's very difficult to uh, give patients enough food for the intensive care um, because of breathing difficulties and, and because of the position that, that patients need to be in when they're recovering. Um, It's actually very difficult to get their their full amount of nutrients via via a tube. It's very difficult to feed patients that have breathing difficulties that are not getting the nutrition in. And, And essentially, these people are losing a lot of weight, losing a lot of muscle mass. So rehabilitating them to get their nutritional status back up to help with their recovery is something that's going to be a huge challenge for us going forward so i think people are beginning to realize just the multiple levels of where nutrition is important particularly in the current pandemic um one thing we were chatting about is we were chatting about nutrition for for, um health professionals themselves which has been really interesting so obviously We're also suffering from not getting the time to go shopping, particularly if you're on the front line having time to eat. Uh, But the interesting thing is just that uh, the absolute massive support and help that's coming from the food industry and from the public. So we were mentioning that in Brighton people are just literally leaving home-baked cakes in the door of the hospital to, to just, just I think um, that response of okay, well we just need to feed these people. It's a showing of we talked about of um, of of love and the need to help and support our colleagues and, and, and the, the, the people, the NHS, that, that, that we uh, are obviously so precious at the moment. So I think there is food from the functional nuts and bolts. The nutrition is important. I think food is also so important in terms of showing emotional support uh,
0: and uh, help at this difficult time. Exactly that. Food really does help boost morale and we've received the most wonderful messages especially from your colleague, uh, Dr. Abby, who's a GP trainee at Northwick Park. We sent him an amazing food package to um, distribute amongst his colleagues from brands that we've been working with, such as Soho Sandwich and Kate Percy's Energy Balls and uh, Number One Living Kombucha. And Abby was just so appreciative because he said that it is really tough. He's working nonstop. 12-hour shifts three days in a row with three days of break and lots of night shifts and at the end of the day there needs to be a sense of camaraderie and a sense of well-being so that doctors can look after themselves to look after others and so at tank we've been really passionate about Getting food brands on board to donate products to us so that we can send them off to our wonderful colleagues in the NHS. So I completely agree that food is a very emotive subject. So onto food being a very emotive subject, Elaine, I want to know what is your last supper meal? So I want to know what your ideal starter, main and dessert would be.
1: Yeah, that's easy. So uh, it has to be Thai food. Uh, myself and, and my husband, Neil, we, we lived in Thailand for three years. Um, I took a career break and lived in Thailand for a while, so I absolutely love Thai food. And I wouldn't bother with a starter and a main uh, because I'd eat Thai style where everything just appears on the table at the same time. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a somtam tam, papaya salad, any Thai spicy salads, give me uh, um, prickapau, which is uh, um, using Thai basil, um, yeah, uh, mango sticky
0: rice, yeah, that would be it. That's the one delicious. That sounds wow, you've made me very hungry. I hear a grumble. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm gonna have
1: that for dinner tonight. Oh. We have two children. And, uh, yeah, if we get the kids to bed early, that's our date night meal.
0: (laughs) That's so special. So did they um, come with you to Thailand or was it before their time? No,
1: it was before their time. Yeah, before their
0: time. The good old days. (laughs) The The good old days. Freedom. (laughs) Oh, so just to end. So what would be your number one ingredient that just, you know, spices up your meals and you couldn't live without? Uh, yeah, so chilli. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm with chili, you on that. Everything. I absolutely yeah, love it. It
1: yeah, literally up my meals.
0: And clears your sinuses, for sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, so important. Yeah, it, it makes me feel good. I, 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 get, I, I can't eat boring food, it makes me angry.
0: That is absolutely <laughs> fair enough. And I really do believe that chilli kind of, I mean, I don't know the science, I've never really looked into it, but it has that kind of addictive quality because I know my mum and I, whenever we're in a restaurant or wherever we always have to add a bit of chili onto whatever we're eating because it just brings out the flavor i don't know if you feel the same way
1: definitely definitely um yeah the more chili the better and (laughs) i think yeah you're right it is very
0: addictive so i think the more you have the more you want exactly
1: it's a healthy a healthy addiction
0: yeah lots of vitamin c am i right
1: yeah
0: yeah but that's not the reason I eat it <laughs> <laughs> it's not all yeah exactly It has to be enjoyable food not just about the yeah. health well Elaine thank you so much for coming on the pod it was an absolute pleasure having you as our first guest you are an absolute wealth of knowledge and you just about covered every basis from Covid to political issues to education issues so thank you and I hope you have a lovely Thai meal tonight
1: thank you thank you very much lovely to talk to you and well done with all your work with with hospitals and promoting nutrition education you really are a powerhouse so proud
0: so elaine finally where can our lovely listeners find you on social media
1: yes yeah, so i'm occasionally on instagram uh my handle there is medednutrition. nutrition Uh, I'm a little bit more active on Twitter, which is at Mac and Inch. Uh, Mac and Inch. um, uh, You can write that down. Nobody can spell it. Uh, Yeah, so look us up. Send us a message. Happy to respond.
0: Great. Tank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications. Jamie Oliver's website and his channel Four show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast. BBC News, BBC Radio 4, on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol and the Royal Society of Medicine. NutriTank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about NutriTank, visit the website, NutriTank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, NutrITank_info underscore info, and Instagram, NutriTank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at NutriTank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.